At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who is the Senior Advisor to the Bipartisan Cyberspace Solarium Commission and the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, he is also an illustrious surface warfare officer uh, with experience both in Europe as well as in the Pacific. Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Vago. Pleasure to be here board and a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Mark, thanks very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure uh, having you aboard. Uh, I want to start off with uh, Russia. I want to discuss a little bit uh, about the preparations that we should be making that we may not be making uh, in terms of uh, getting uh, American cyber defenses up to step, right? There is a concern. Uh, we don't know whether or not Vladimir Putin is going to go into Ukraine or not. But if he does, we've promised massive sanctions. Uh, and then uh, both um, the FBI and uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity uh, Infrastructure Security Agency, have both said, hey, uh, the U.S. Uh, industrial-based critical infrastructure, uh, defense contractors, everybody indeed ought to be prepared for Russian offensive cyber operations uh, against them. And there is a concern that we may not be doing as much, right, to prepare for that. I want to first go to a piece of guidance that was issued today by the National Security Agency, FBI, uh, and CISA uh, on uh, the release of an advisory, quote, protecting clear defense contractor networks against years-long activity by Russian state-sponsored actors. Uh, this came out of uh, Fort Meade. What does this mean practically, and how does it play into uh, the current tensions and crisis? Sort of why now, even though part of this, right, was in the president's executive order from January 19, right? This was one of the dates that action uh, would be taken. Well, Hago, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, the warning to the uh, clear defense contractors um, uh, was, is, uh, is trying to get ahead of what we think could be Russian actions. Uh, taken um, after a U.S. Um, response of of sanctions or or whatever to to uh, to Russian actions in Ukraine. Um, look, first I would say this is a very good advisory. It, it goes into good detail. It's twenty pages plus. Goes into good detail of kind of the threat, um, uh, the the types of attack vectors that are used, the, the specific threat tactics, techniques, and procedures. And then, you know, has a very good list of mitigations, uh, um, you know, enabling multi-factor authentication, enforcing strong, unique passwords, um, you know, reducing, you know, your credential exposures. But let's be clear, these clear defense contractors should have been using this all along. This is basic cyber hygiene. It's just reminding them to do it. But at this point, 
with the likelihood of a attack a attacks coming, it's a good, you know, this kind of advisory is the right thing to do. It's what we can do um, in the short term when we, you know, when the real work that's needed is, is our long, long term game of building a better, resilient, reliable, critical infrastructure. Um, and uh, for the audience who doesn't know what a cleared uh, defense contractor is, what is a cleared defense contractor? So these are the ones who are using are uh, uh, and um, the these are the contractors that have varying levels of cybersecurity, you know, uh, access and um, and resources. They work our command and control communication systems, our weapons and missile development systems, our uh, our software, our military software development. So they are the uh, they are the intellectual property of our defense industrial base. The most important contractors doing the most important work effectively, right? It doesn't necessarily yes. extend to all contractors, even though it's implicit uh, in the guidance that the, the government wants everybody uh, to do more. Um, you, right, I mean, the, the concern remains, though, on the part of some that we are still not doing enough to prepare ourselves, right? I mean, if there was a blizzard, you'd be checking if you have snow plows, does the generator work, does the snowblower work? Uh, and, and there is a little bit of concern that we're not doing enough to warn everybody, uh, despite this order, um, uh, to, to better prepare. Um, are we doing enough that go, you know, because again, there's the, there was the FBI guidance and CISA guidance a couple of weeks ago. Uh, now we have this. Are folks doing enough to really safeguard themselves from a Russian uh, offensive operation against things that we hold dear? So I think there's really two, two questions here. Are we doing enough now that we're in the position we're in? And the question of, did we do enough in the past? And how will we do better next time in that regard to kind of the long-term thing? So in the short term, are we doing enough? I believe CISA, FBI, NSA are, are waving the red flag pretty aggressively for US critical infrastructure owners. In this case, the very specifically defense industrial base uh, owners and more broadly, uh, small, medium, and large businesses. So they are doing what they can do, which is saying basically do good cyber hygiene, which you should have been doing every day anyway, because of criminal actors, forget this Russian threat. Now, the question of, did we do enough in the past? The answer is no, that we, are do, we don't have the kind of resilient, recoverable critical infrastructures that we need. Uh, and this is a result of, you know, we've benefited greatly for the interconnectivity of our systems. Um, but that those that same interconnectivity that gives us our economic growth and uh, you know exceptional um, you know uh, technological uh, flexibility also creates a lot of vulnerability vulnerability to malicious cyber actors whose tools are getting uh, you know easier and easier for anyone to obtain. Um, you know we in the Cyberspace Learning Commission we're very um, point pointed in our you know criticism of bipartisan criticism of the last four administrations and not building what we call continuity of the economy planning or the idea of a resilient, recoverable economy, national security and public health and safety uh, of our critical infrastructure. And uh, they, the Biden administration will have an opportunity when this crisis is over to get to work on that issue. The law was passed over a year ago. They need to get our, uh, our cyber planning efforts together and begin to really build the resilient, recoverable critical infrastructure that our nation deserves. How is the industry overall doing? Um, 
And, you know, the administration is, you know, we have the executive order um, that that we've discussed on this program many times. The president signed it out on, on January the 19th or it was disclosed on January 19th. Are, are, are we, how is industry doing in terms of responding to the administration's call to do better? Let me put it that way. So, I mean, that there is no um, homogenous answer to that, uh, how industry is doing. Um, it's very disparate depending on which industry we're talking about. So I'll give you an example. Financial services and, and the defense industrial base are in good shape. A, a good example, financial services. Um, what I mean by that is they've made the investments in cybersecurity over the years. So particularly if you take the top eight banks in America, many of these banks spend between $750 million to up to a billion dollars a year in cybersecurity. That's more than 150 countries in the world spend on cybersecurity and, and almost all federal agencies except uh, DOD and the Department of Homeland Security. Um, the, why are those banks spending a lot of money? Because those banks have been under malicious cyber attack for 30 years by cyber criminals because that's where the money was. Um, the other infrastructure is you know, where it's at has to do with um, the degree to which it's regulated, the degree to which it perceived the threat. So defense industrial base saw the intellectual property theft that occurred against it over, uh, you know, from China and to a limited degree from Russia over the past two decades, they've made investments. The, the energy grid is in, slightly, is in slightly better shape because there's a strong regulatory infrastructure on it. That, that also applies to financial services. Other sectors like water are the Wild West, where there's 62,000 water and wastewater utilities and two people at EPA responsible for external cybersecurity, you know, working with these industries. And clearly that's not a regulatory environment. Um, and so here's where the trick comes in. You ask, how are we doing? So I tell you somebody like financial services is in good shape. I'll even say they're an A in cybersecurity. The problem is if they lose power, they only have 48 or 72 hours of diesel backup, right? So, uh, you know, an alternate power supply. So they're relying on, you know, the New York banking system would be relying on Con Ed. So what's Con Ed's grade in cybersecurity? Let's say they're a B plus. She's like, well, we're okay. You know, after 48 hours, we, did, we were a B plus kind of place waiting for power to come back. Um, and then, and then, but then you got to remind yourself that Con Ed doesn't work without the municipal water supplies providing cooling water to their power plants. And now you're talking about a D minus. So you're only as strong as your weakest link in critical infrastructure. But unfortunately in the United States, we have some weak links. And, and I mentioned water, our healthcare um, provision, uh, so the cybersecurity of our healthcare provision, the um, pipelines were, I think they're getting better quickly. Um, maritime transportation sector has us very worried, our SPOD, our, uh, our ports in the, uh, in the, uh, in the um, PNT systems that really operate them. You know, we have some real vulnerabilities out there that the Russians could target should they decide to, and it would bring our overall economy to its knees. Now, I don't believe that would be the Russian, that kind of escalatory move would be the Russian move. I think they would be probably, and I hate to use this word with the Russians because they're not good at it, but they'd be more surgical in their response. But, uh, you know, they, you know, you, this is the group that did not Petya that, that left Ukraine accidentally and went into Western Europe and did tens of billions of dollars of damage. So uh, I worry a lot about our critical infrastructure because we're only as strong as our weakest link and our weakest links are weak. Um, it's, it's funny you should uh, point out that which uh, the entire world should abundantly have figured out, um, you know, 
in the 1920s <laughs> regarding, uh, you know, Russia, the Soviet Union, and then modern Russia, which is subtlety sometimes is not its, uh, or, or rather, I should say, deliberate clumsiness, um, right? There are a whole bunch of ways you can assassinate somebody. They're picking ways to assassinate people that are sort of obvious that they tried to assassinate people, uh, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me. Uh, let me ask you the question of fully coming to grips with landmines or malware uh, that may already exist in our systems. Um, this has been an issue going back more than a decade that we've known of these vulnerabilities. Um, we, we don't, and acknowledging them, just like acknowledging what the Russians have been doing in space, for example, you know what I mean? We have a tendency of not publicly acknowledging this stuff because we do not publicly want to deal with it because we don't know how to deal with it, right? Do we at this point, Mark, without compromising anything that you know regarding this topic, because I know you know quite a lot about this topic, do, do we have a good enough understanding of exactly how potentially compromised we are at this point? Right? Do do we have because then solar winds happened and then it was an assessment of you know whether they were leave behinds, right? So is it a legitimate espionage operation, in which case, you know, we we give them an attaboy and you manage to do this. Um, but then it becomes something very different if actually what they did was um you know, malware was left behind or you know, certain other back doors were left open, right? Do do we have a good enough network understanding of where these landmines might be at this point? And if not, what do we need to be doing differently to get a full accounting of it? Because honestly, the attack surface is just almost incomprehensibly large or the vulnerability surface or vectors. That's a great question, a big question too. And so first, for a long period of time, we didn't acknowledge their insertion of malware in our critical infrastructure, but we have recently. And I think in the report reported that as far back as 2012, we've been aware of their doing this. And I'm sure it's farther than that. I mean, I'm certainly not in a position to comment um, how far back it goes, but we've known about it. And look, where we know there was a problem, I'm, I'm confident there's been remedi remediation efforts. But this begs the larger question, okay, um, where have they put malware in our water or financial services or electrical power or transportation or pipeline? Um, software or hardware that we're unaware? And the answer is, it could be a lot of, it, it's, there is very little, I have very low, uh, I have very little optimism that we have even an inkling of what they've done inside our critical infrastructure. I think they've pervasively put malware in and I suspect they've um, pervasively put malware in and that we have caught a small percentage of it and remediated it. Um, now, look, some of it self-remediates in the sense that software gets replaced, hardware gets replaced, and, and their, their malware is no longer present. I get that. Uh, and there's some advantage to that. It, 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 but broadly, I think there's probably a lot of malware still in our systems from Russia and China. But here we're concerned about Russia with the Ukraine issue. And we should believe that they get, you know, we, we have to recognize they will be successful and that success for us isn't defeating every attack, it is handling every attack, mitigating the impact, uh, remediating the damage, uh, and restoring uh, full capability rapidly. 
And we have to be good at those things. And those, again, everything I just said there, most infrastructures are not good at it. Uh, financial services is the best. Electrical power is working on it. Uh, the Department of Energy has worked very hard with grid exercises and other things to be better at it. But the reality is the resilience of our national critical infrastructure still trails the likely impact of Russian malicious activity. I want to take you to uh, how we how companies should be preparing for a potential uh, onslaught, Mark. A very good friend mentioned that in the event that there was a blizzard warning, smart folks go out and make sure that the shovel works, the generator works, the snowblower works, you've got enough oil and gas and you know, however long this, this will take. Uh, not assume that Snowmageddon might miss us, right? Uh, only to find out that God, you know, you got enough gas, but you don't have oil and the generator won't start unless it has enough oil in it, right? I mean, that's that's sort of basic sort of sort of stuff. How is it companies should be preparing themselves for this? And how do we need to be bracing for it? Because there is a concern, and as you mentioned it, that folks are not taking this as seriously potentially as they should beyond sort of the surface of the guidance, right? Make sure you've battened down the hatches, you're, you're doing your, your updates as opposed to the nature of this assault could be actually very, very different and may surprise people. Well, so I, I would describe this as two, two different problems. There is the short-term problem of a Russia-Ukraine, you know, escalatory incident, you know, in the next few weeks. And for that, honestly, we're at the point where you battening down the hatches to use your terminology or really carrying out uh, the kind of expected cyber hygiene of small and medium-sized businesses and the kind of comprehensive resilience, uh, you know, uh, enforcement and planning uh, of large businesses needs to be happening right now. Um, now. But that is, I mean, we're basically going to have to withstand the blow. Um, so I, I, the, honestly, uh, Vago, there isn't other great, there's no secret recipe here. You're at the point, you have the cybersecurity you have. You're not gonna be able to change it dramatically in the next, you know, week or month. What we really need to do is sit back after this and understand that, look, we have to have better resilience planning, better what we call continuity of the economy planning. How, how do you um, kind of withstand the assault and rapidly restart your economy after a, a significant effect? Um, you know, we recently passed a law about two years ago telling the administration, hey, you need to come up with a continuity of the economy plan. Now, admittedly, the first year was completely lost. Part of it is their new administration. Part of it is it's a hard issue. Part of it is everyone ignores Congress for a few months. But the bottom line is they've wasted a year of the two years they have to get this planning going. I, I don't think even under the best of conditions, they wouldn't have had a plan done yet. But it really is incumbent on the administration to get its economy plan ready um, you know, over the next year or so. We've also, you know, uh, created a you know, through law a joint cyber planning office that the Department of Homeland Security and Cybersecurity Security Agency or CISA have uh, made part of their joint cyber defense collaborative. Some good stuff going on there, but that is the law. That's for the next crisis with China or Russia again. Um, you know, so we long term we've got to take the lesson from this and really make the appropriate investments in the resilience of our critical infrastructure. Short term, I think we need to weather the blow. 
Let me ask you one last question on this topic and then go to uh, the legislative uh, outlook because you're kind enough to join us. I know that you're uh, playing a very active role in steering uh, legislation uh, through uh, the process, uh, even if House uh, members are on CODELs and doing that kind of stuff and the Senate is, uh, is actually busy working on a whole, uh, whole, whole bunch of initiatives. Mark, the question that people ask uh, is a will question, right? Ultimately, deterrence is about your likelihood that you're going to do something about the problem, right? That you have the will to do something as much as you have the capability. So if, if you have one or the other, deterrence fails. If you don't have both, it's, it really ends up very badly. So if you're Russian and Chinese and you look at the West and say, these guys aren't really going to do anything uh, because uh, they're fat, dumb, and comfortable. Uh, and, and acknowledging a problem means doing something about it, as we've discussed, right? We've known some of these problems were going on for a while. We just made sure that we didn't talk about them because if you don't talk about it, you don't really have to do anything about it. Your adversary takes messages from that. Then there's a question of demonstrable capability. Wait a minute, my weapons are longer range than your weapons are, and you have no way of defending yourself uh, against my longer range weapons. Okay, deterrence fails. How, how are we doing in telegraphing from your standpoint toughness? Because I think that the concern is the Russians actually may not really believe that we are going to punish them in any meaningful fashion if they do something to us? Or is that your sense or have I got that wrong? Well, so first of all, you just gave an excellent um, primer on why we need to invest in hypersonic defense. Because if all you have is a hypersonic attack, at some point the adversary determines that he gets to launch first and your hypersonic attack will be off the playing field. But taking this back to cyber in Russia, um, you're absolutely right. I mean. We are going to look, deterrence by denial is not going to work in Ukraine. If, if there's, if they choose to take action in Ukraine, you know, cyber action, kinetic action, the, the Russians will get their way. And, and that's, you know, a problem with how much Ukraine spent on defense, you know, the, the, this, the natural power balance between the two, the fact that Ukraine doesn't have treaty allies to help them. That's a fact. Deterrence, but, you know, so what comes next is deterrence by punishment. Can Europe and the United States punish Russia to a degree or threaten, credibly threaten to punish Russia to a degree that they choose not to do the attack or terminate the attack, right? And that's where we determine that's the U.S. response. And then obviously taking it one step further, if there's attacks on our critical infrastructure, it's A, can we respond to it rapidly? Can we recover? And, I'm, and I've said repeatedly during this that we're going to struggle to do that. And, but then B, can we impose can we impose um, cost on their critical infrastructure as well in a way that says, don't do that again. That was, you escalated, you went too far and here's what's going to come back at you. And there we do have a lot of capability. And I think we've always been clear that in the cyber, we will not always respond to a cyber event with cyber tools. Now we may respond to a cyber event with cyber tools, but we could respond with non-cyber tools as well, but we'll have to see what, what happens there. We do have significant offensive capabilities and I believe Russia understands the degree to which we can probably um, intervene in their critical infrastructures and create significant problems for uh, Putin and the other autocrats. And so um, I hope, you know, maybe we'll have to demonstrate some of that as part, as part of the back and forth in this uh, to, to get Russia to back down. But we do have significant offensive capabilities if it goes to that, if it gets to that step in this back and forth. 
Uh, and and uh, right, I mean, one of the reasons we've been uh, a little bit reticent, particularly toward the Chinese, about demonstrating these capabilities is that the Chinese and now increasingly the Russians are 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 good at. Uh, copying or countering them very uh, quickly. So I understand the broader uh, debate uh, that's going on within the administration because we, we have given brushback pitches, as you know. In fact, you were wearing a uniform at the time that some of these brushback pitches happen. Uh, and uh, and then we've been surprised at how quickly the Chinese have kind of come up uh, on the power curve. Um, let, me, let me shift to uh, legislation. You're intimately involved in crafting uh, some uh, legislation that's up on the hill in order to be able to you know, move the cyber ball down the field. And I, I say this every single time, and I mean it, this, the commission really deserves uh, under under the leadership of uh, Angus uh, King and Mike Gallagher, uh, but Jim Langevin and other members uh, who have done such a terrific job, at least advancing the cyber ball for the nation. Uh, where where are we on critical uh, legislation at, at the moment? Right. I mean, there's the reporting requirement legislation that's that's on the table. Just sort of give us give the audience kind of a quick update on where we stand uh, sure. on the important bits and, sure, and sure. work and work and work that still has to be done. Yeah. So sure. Let me first start with something that's happening, I hope, uh, starting a week from now, and that's we're going to conference the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act with the Competes Act, the two China bills. This is important. Um, the, uh, the And I recognize the Competes Act has a, a bunch of legislation tacked on the back that was done in a non in a uh, in a partisan way, but that'll get cut off in a uh, in a conference. So you'll then take these two good bills and, and conference them. And first, start out with an easy win, which is both of them had uh, fifty two billion dollars uh, in funding for the Chips Act, establishing grant programs to support our domestic semiconductor produ uh, production. Um, I think you got to you know get that get that across the finish line. And while that's the kind of the headline grabbing thing in these bills, there's a bunch of other good stuff in there um, in cybersecurity. Both bills seek to rectify dramatic shortages in the federal cyber workforce. They invest in STEM education and create national cyber rotational cybersecurity uh, positions among federal employees. And probably most importantly, and this is in the House bill alone, but I know the Senate is comfortable going along with it. It's increasing cyber core scholarship for service, which is an ROTC like program for the federal cybersecurity workforce, increasing it from 60 million a year to 90 million a year. That'll double the number of scholarship recipients a year to about a thousand. And that'll really help solve the federal cybersecurity workforce shortages. Uh, additionally, both bills invest in US leadership in international technical standard setting bodies like the International Telecommunications Union. This arena has become a crucial battlefront in the contest between say our Western values of a free and open in internet and the authoritarian push from Beijing. Um, and, uh, and finally, both increased fundings for the State Department's Global Engagement Center, an important place for battling foreign disinformation campaigns against our, our country. Now look, in, in, beyond that, there are things that are uniquely in the House bill, like Representative Langevin and Representative Gallagher uh, put in critical technology security centers to evaluate and test the security of technologies essential to our critical infrastructures. Uh, they also created an international capacity building program and, and supported software security and, uh, and digital privacy work at NIST. Uh, and then the Senate version had one very cool thing that you'd like to see picked up. And that's the idea of setting up a national risk management cycle to, to kind of identify, assess and prioritize cyber physical risk and then develop a five-year plan to get at them. It may seem amazing to you, you know, coming from DOD backgrounds, we expect that kind of thing to be happening routinely and the rest of the .gov, probably not so much. So this competes act, USICA act, 
conferencing is critical to getting a ton of cybersecurity done. It would be almost like an NDAA passed for non-defense areas. So we really need to get at that. Um, another bill out there, you're right, is the incident reporting. It's, it's been bundled with FISMA reform and FedRAMP. I don't know that the FISMA and FedRAMP will be successful as incident reporting. I think the incident reporting will get done either standalone or put on the back of, the, um, of an appropriations omnibus. And then finally, you know, Representative Langsman and Representative Katko, for example, both said they're retiring, but I both think they're going to, I think they're both going to be tireless in pushing through the remaining cybersecurity issues in this year's NDAA coming up this spring and summer. So we ought to see the systemically important critical infrastructure and the joint collaborative environment and maybe a Bureau of Cyber Statistics, the kind of things that uh, both of them and uh, Senator King have been um, arguing for over the last year, but failed to get into last year's NDAA. I think, I think you'll see another big push on that. So this could be a pretty big uh, year for cybersecurity, a generally nonpartisan you know, national security issue uh, to, to, to get a lot of work done. I'm excited about 2022. Uh, Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Uh, really enjoyed it. And I look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago. Pleasure to be here. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit NorthropGrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.